on this episode of Jeff Does Vegas. So I'm I'm opening for Jackie Mason that following week, and that's going you know that's going well. And then uh, I think like it was a like four or five nights into the run, Rodney comes in, and I guess he's I'm on stage and he watches me, and there it's good, the audience is enjoying it and stuff like that. And I come off stage and Rodney's standing there and he goes. They obviously enjoy what you do. What do you do? Because you hadn't seen the whole act. Las Vegas. It's more than just a city. It's a feeling. It's that feeling of excitement when you spot the lights of the strip out the airplane window. It's that feeling of awe as you stroll down the boulevard, taking in the sights and sounds. And it's that feeling of satisfaction knowing that you're in the greatest city in the world. Over 42 million people from around the world share that feeling every year. And I'm one of them. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff, and this is Jeff Does Vegas. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 131 of Jeff Does Vegas. Before we get into this episode of the podcast, I just want to take a moment to thank my guest from the last episode, Julian Romero, the host of the Vegas Confessions podcast. I love it when I can get fellow Vegas content creators on the podcast and learn about what drives them to share their passion for the city we both love. Julian and I talked about what he loves about being a Vegas podcaster, what got him into podcasting in the first place, and how he's managed to turn a passion project into a full-time gig. If you haven't listened as of yet, jump into the archives at jeffdoesvegas.com or search out episode number 130, the Vegas Confessions Podcast, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, here we go. On to the show. Picture it. It's the late 1970s. You're a singer, songwriter, guitar player, working the bar scene in New York City. One night, after having had enough of dealing with crowds that don't pay attention to you, you decide to mess around with the lyrics of a popular song, and you manage to turn that into a career spanning almost 40 years that's given you the chance to work with some of the biggest names in comedy and music. That's exactly what my guest for this episode of the podcast did. Dennis Blair is a Las Vegas-based comedian and musician who, over the course of the last four decades, has worked with the likes of Rodney Dangerfield, Joan Rivers, and George Carlin. He co-wrote a feature film. He's worked on TV specials. He's made several appearances on The Tonight Show and other late-night shows. He's released multiple CDs of both music and comedy, and he recently released a book titled Touring with Legends. Dennis and I talked about what initially got him into comedy, the early days of working with Rodney and what led to their falling out, life on the road with Joan, what it was like spending 18 years as the opening act for George, and much, much more. Please enjoy my conversation with Dennis Blair. I was always kind of funny in school anyway, because I was a nerd, so, you know, I know it's hard to believe I was a nerd. Um, but, you know, it started like in seventh, eighth grade when the teacher, we had study period and I would do impressions, you know, of teachers and of political figures to get them to laugh. And then they laughed at me. But, you know, I was, it wasn't something I was going to do ever for a living. So cut to, I'm like singing in bars, you know, and nobody's listening because they're all talking and they're all drinking and no one's paying attention to the stupid singer on the stage. And I got offended. I said, how come they're not listening to me? How come no one's applauding? So I said, so during a break, I went upstairs to the, at this club and I just came up with this parody of uh, the Bee Gees hit, Staying Alive. Singing Too High was my, uh, was my take on So I came back after the break. I did a James Taylor song. I did a Paul Simon song. And then I threw this uh, parody in. And people started going, huh? What? That's not the words. That's, I think he's got the word. And then they realized it was a joke. And then they started laughing. And I went, ooh, maybe I'm onto something here. So then the next break, I came up with another thing. And then I started doing some patter in between. And from that complete accidental thing that I developed over a couple of months at that club, I moved into the Manhattan, four, four blocks from Dangerfield, and auditioned with the stupid little 20-minute act that I uh, come up with. And that's how it started, a professional comedy. And so how many years have you been at it now? Oh, Jesus. Almost 40. And all of that coming from what was essentially uh, almost like an FU to the audience. Yes. Yes, it was. And it still is. (laughs) (laughs) 
And now for those who may not be um, stand-up comedy aficionados, uh, Dangerfields, of course, a, a legendary comedy club owned uh, originally by comedy legend Rodney Dangerfield. Yes. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's closed now. I went there. I was in New York in May and passed by. It's got a for sale sign on it. Huh, very sad. Yes, but that was a great, yeah, Rodney, Rodney would play there. Uh, on 65th, 61st and 1st in Manhattan, Jackie Mason, you know, he'd have all sorts of big headliners and then comedy most of the time when he wasn't there, just guys, schlubs like me would come in and headline. And so what year was this then? I know, I mean, by this point, late seventies, Rodney was already pretty big, uh, doing up. He'd been on the tonight show a few times and, and had been performing live, obviously, but this was pre pre Caddyshack, which was when things really went crazy for him, right? Yeah, my timing was perfect at this for once in my life. So I got I went there at the end of 1979 to do my little audition, and uh, from that audition that went really well uh, at one o'clock in the morning, um, they said, "Hey, you want to open for Jackie Mason the next week?" And I said, "Okay." <laughs> <laughs> just doing this stuff at clubs, you know. So, yeah, sure. So that's how that started. But yeah, 79, uh, and then Rodney came in the next week, and that, the story goes on from there. But that's about when it started, like beginning of 80. Tell me about that first meeting with Rodney. So I'm I'm opening for Jackie Mason that following week, and that's going, you know, that's going well. And then uh, I think like it was a, like four or five nights into the run, Rodney comes in, and I guess he's I'm on stage and he watches me. And it's good, the audience is enjoying it and stuff like that. And I come off stage and Rodney's standing there and he goes, they obviously enjoy what you do. What do you do? Because <laughs> he hadn't seen the whole act. <laughs> so I said, hi, uh, Rodney. I do song parodies and like observational stuff. And so he goes, oh, I'm going to watch it. So he watched the second show. So that's how that was. He said, hey, you're funny. You want to want to open for me next week? I said, is this really happening? <laughs> is this, <laughs> this was not supposed to be happening. I'm supposed to be doing wine and cheese clubs. And being an unattentive and un, 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 not paying attention to singer. And here I am opening for Rodney Dangerfield. So that's how that happened. So many entertainers that I've met over the course of my life, whether it's comedians, musicians, actors, actresses, whatever, they, they're always very um, boisterous in their performances, but they tend to be a little bit introverted in their real life. What was Rodney Dangerfield like in the real world when he wasn't on stage, when he wasn't performing? Well, he was, uh, I'll have to say he's though, he was the unhappiest person I ever met in my life. He just he didn't, he couldn't enjoy his success. He was just, he used to tell me, he says, I was born to the downhead. That doesn't change when you become successful, you know? So, uh, yeah, he was, he was very subdued, more so, definitely more subdued than the stage persona. But, uh, but, you know, he could be funny. He could be funny on stage. We had some great, we had some laughs, you know, but all in all, he was like, you know, he, he got into the, we were going to a gig somewhere. I think it was Westbury, Long Island, and I was waiting in the in the limo that he had booked, and I'm waiting for him to get in the car. And I'm there for like five minutes, and he comes in at the and just the first thing he says, "Not hello, how are you?" He goes, "It's all bullshit, man. It's all bullshit." It's all bullshit. <laughs> I said, "What?" He goes, "Yeah, so you know, people think I'm you know, oh, I know Chevy Chase. Who cares? You know, it's like that was that was the whole ride. I'm going." He either got up on the wrong side of the bed that day or just was just in a foul mood. And uh, But that was his overall thing. He says, what's it all mean, you know? And I, I wanted to tell him, it means you're rich and you don't have to worry about anything anymore. But, you know. When a, when a car ride starts like that, that kind of sets the tone for the rest of the day, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And that was an extreme case because most of the time, you know, he was pretty cool and, you know, we'd enjoy each other's company. But, you know, there was always that underlying What's it all mean? You know, it's just, it just could not be. Every once in a while, he'd have like a burst of like three minutes of, man, look what happened to me. I can't believe this. You know, after Caddyshack, like you said, I can't believe I'm in movies now and people are coming to see me and all that stuff. But that was rare. He just didn't, you know, he just was the way he always was because he was a sad guy. To a certain degree, then that whole, I get no respect thing was really just almost like a, a slightly exaggerated him. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it fit the yeah, it fit the actual persona pretty well. Good the respect. How long did you tour with Rodney Dangerfield? It, it was quite a quite a length of time. Yeah, I was with him for three and a half years. So nineteen eighty through eighty three, middle of eighty three or something like that. Uh, touring with him, we had well. Here is the thing with Rodney. Uh, 
once he liked you, he wanted to hang out with you like all the time. And I was at that, you know, I, I, I got married in 81 and I wanted to kind of hang out with my wife and my dog every once in a while. But he lived in Westport, Connecticut, which was across the, uh, the bay from where I lived, which was Port Jefferson, Long Island. And he'd always call, hey, come on over. We're going to do some writing. And I'm like, going, but my, 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 my mother's here. She's visiting. Yeah, tell you, yeah, tell her to go screw herself. Come on over. We're going to go right. Okay. <laughs> I guess I have to because if I don't, he'll get pissed off and he'll fire me. You know, that's the downside of working with celebrities. You're, you're, you're a victim of their moods. But uh, so my, my point being that uh, I would spend a whole bunch of, he wanted to spend a whole bunch of time with me, come up with stuff. Uh, we'll just hang out. So, uh, you know, but it was fun most of the time. But sometimes it was like, Okay. <laughs> I guess I got to go. I would imagine to a certain degree. I mean, that hanging out with a guy like Rodney must have been exhausting as well. Yeah. I mean, it's it, no, you know what? It really wasn't exhausting. Once we got together and I, you know, it, 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 if it was like a, a situation like that where, you know, I was going to do something else today, but okay, we'll hang out. But once you got there, he, he, it was kind of fun, you know, because we, we would write stuff together. We'd work on, I, I, I wrote him a joke once and, didn't go over but that was but he still wanted to write with me and you know we did a couple of tv specials and we we wrote easy money together and uh so i mean most of the time it was fine and yeah and he and he he was he, he could be really funny you know many many times on those days when he didn't say what's it all mean man you know but yeah it was it was cool and it was you know and you know i got some it was amazing that all the people that came to see him these big stars these full these packed audiences and stuff so it was a very cool time 1983, the movie Easy Money, Rodney Dangerfield, Joe Pesci, a, a, a funny movie, a movie that I've seen a lot that's kind of, I think, maybe garnered a little bit of a, a, a cult classic status over the last few years. This is a film that you were a part of. You actually were one of the co-writers of this movie. Had you ever written anything of that scale or, or, or even... <laughs> of a of a slightly smaller scale when you came on board to be involved with easy money no this is this is the crazy thing about my career i mean you couldn't have planned my career if you wanted to i you know i i think i did that that club i did where i was pissed off at everybody i did i did that maybe three months before a meeting hooking up with rodney within six months i'm co-writing a major a movie like the biggest comedian in america and here's what happened so he did cat, you know, he was doing his club and he would have, you know, it'd be pretty full, but not every night, you know, he was a well-known comic, but he wasn't like a superstar yet. So, you know, I mean, three quarters full on uh, half full on weekdays, full on weekends. Uh, but all of a sudden Caddyshack makes him the huge, he like blows up. Now there's lines around the block. He can't, no one can get into his club because there's lines around the block. So he has to start touring. Um, and he's like, you know, he's like the biggest com comic in Hollywood. So they want to do a movie with him. And I, he says to me, he's in his dress. He goes, yeah, listen, they want to do a movie with me, uh, you know, starring me because of Caddyshack. So if you come up with any ideas, let me know. Now, I've been doing comedy, what, six months? He says, the biggest comedy in America just said, oh, if you come up with an idea for a movie, why don't you uh, breeze it by me? I run home that night. And I go, I got to think of a movie. I got to think of an idea. I got to think of an idea. And I come up with the basic idea, which is his mother-in-law who hates him says she'll give him $10 million in her will and quit smoking, drinking, and gambling for one year. And he liked the idea. I said, great. Then he got two writers. So I, I'm, he doesn't have me as a writer. You know, I just came up with the idea. So, and I'm thrilled with that, you know. But he has these two writers, Michael Endler, who was the husband of his then manager, and P.J. O'Rourke. He's written books. He's written for Rolling Stone. He, he was a satirist. They, he, they hired him. So he's the, he's he, Rodney, and Michael are the writers. Two weeks into it, I get a call from Rodney. Yeah, they just came up with a, a script. It's, it's shit. I want you to read it. Really? Okay. So he sends it over to me. I read it. It's, a, it's okay. It's a first draft. So obviously it needs to be worked on. So I call him up and I go, yeah, Rodney, I read it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's okay. It's not great, but it's, you know, and he says, just as I thought, it's shit. He calls up his manager, whose husband is one of the writers and says, Dennis agrees with me. The, the script is a piece of shit. <laughs> I want him to be a writer on the movie. So they have, they have a writing session like a, like a week later. And unbeknownst to me, he had said that to his manager. 
whose husband is writing. And we I meet with PJ and Michael, and they're glaring at me the whole time, and I have no idea why. And I'm going, okay, these guys hate me for some reason. A couple of days later, it comes out. You know, We start getting along. We start working together. And he goes, so why did you hate our script? I go, I never hated your script. Cleared that up right away. And then everything was relatively clear sailing from then. But that's the way it went at the beginning. And so were you on the set while they were filming the movie? Oh, yeah. Yeah, most of the time. Because, you know, they wanted uh, first-time director, first-time writers. Uh, and they, you know, if a scene wasn't working, they'd come to us immediately, go, nah, we need uh, we need some new stuff. Come up. So we'd always be on there to help out. In going back and re-watching some of the clips of the movie um, with Joe Pesci, you can see that when he is interacting and, and working with Rodney, he's trying very hard to keep it together. And there are times when he obviously isn't. And, and my limited knowledge of, of the movie and the TV industry is that if that stuff's making it into the film, that was probably the best take that they could get. So I'm thinking there was probably a lot of busting up on that 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 set was it a fun set to be on well here's the thing yeah it, it was it was it a fun set well for me it was a hilarious amazingly fun because i'm on a movie set i'm right. doing a movie that i wrote uh that i helped write uh so you know but there was you know i mean rodney was difficult you know he, he didn't understand rodney did not understand even doing the writing of the movie which took two years he did not understand sitting around his table in his apartment. What? That's not funny. Where's the joke? If it wasn't a joke, he didn't understand why people would laugh at it. So, you know, if it was a situation that was funny, if it was you know, irony or whatever, all that stuff. No, you gotta have a you gotta have a one liner there. So he, we were forced to like, it's his movie. You know, we were forced to do that. So um, that's the thing. So Pe- so Pesci, um, who started out as being a huge Rodney fan. <laughs> Um, it's just like by the end of the shoot, it was like you know, he, he, if if somebody came, if Pesci ad libbed the line on the set, he got a laugh. Rodney would take it from him. I mean, stuff like that. So, I'll do that line. I'll do that. Okay, <laughs> you know. So and poor Pesci's like, you know, Pesci wanted to hang out in character with Rodney because that's what he did. Let's hang out as our characters. And Rodney said, I don't do that. Here's what I do. You throw a line at me, I throw a line back at you. That's what we do. Immediately, Pesci was. You could see him going. Can I get out of this? Can I sign the contract yet? Is there time to? So there was that, you know. So uh, it, by the end, it was like, okay, I think uh, I'm never going to do this again. <laughs> <laughs> and if you notice, all the people that were in it, no one ever lists that movie as, as in their credits. You know, you never hear Joe talking about BZ Money. You never hear Taylor Nagron, you never heard Taylor Negron say, oh, yeah, I did. Yeah. Jennifer Jason Lee, who's in everything now. You never see her mention that. I, I don't think people... The actors generally had a great time, but I did. (laughs) So you said you worked with Rodney for three-ish years. What was behind things wrapping up with Rodney? When did it all come to an end with the two of you working together? Oh, it all came. Well, Rodney was, I don't know. I don't know what astrological sign he is, but it's apparently a sign is you do one thing that he considers wrong, that that's it. You're done, which is, you know, it's, I've toured with a lot of celebrities. The best thing you can do is to keep out of their way and not bond too much because something's going to go wrong sooner or later. So Rodney, you know, he get he barely, barely got mad at me. We always got along, and he'd have a little flare up here and there for something stupid. But this time, we brought our dog to his home in Westport because our dog at the time was like our child. We didn't have children, and we loved our dog. And I had to go over there all the time. I said, Rodney, can we bring our dog to your house? Okay, but make sure he doesn't go swimming in my pool. That should have been the first clue. We went, what? <laughs> he had a pool. He says, don't bring a switch because I'll have to clean. I'll have to clean all the air out of the pool. I said, okay, we'll, we'll try to uh, adhere to that. Uh, so my wife and I, well, we weren't married yet, but we're in the j- jacuzzi at Rodney's house. He goes to take a nap. Our dog is roaming freely. Um, jumps up on the ledge, licks our face, falls into the jacuzzi, just as Rodney wakes up and comes in. It is about to come in. We go quick, hide the dog. He's going to think we took it in our in his pool, and he we couldn't get into the garage. It's a long story, but while I'm standing there with a wet dog, he goes, "You took this dog swimming." He goes, "No, he fell into the jacuzzi back and forth, back and forth." He wouldn't believe us. He's really pissed off for some reason because <laughs> the dog was in the water literally for like twelve seconds. Um, and we had to stay over because the, the last ferry had left from Port Jefferson. So we had to 
stay overnight with this guy who's pissed off at us. So and and he held it. He held a grudge about that forever. And the second thing was Joan Rivers, who he hated because he claimed that she stole his jokes, which she didn't. Uh, called uh, her her people called me once and said, "Do you want to do ten nights with Joan Rivers?" I said, "I don't know. Rodney doesn't like her, but uh, I don't think so." So um, I told Rodney the next day, "Yeah, Joan Rivers people called." They said I turned her down. He said, "No, you can't do that." She does it. She gets hosts on the Tonight Show. You got to do it. I go really because you hate her. Don't worry about it. She, I'm not going to stand in your way. Do that. I said okay. So I signed the contract to do ten days with Joan. Two days later, Rodney goes, "You know what? I've been thinking about it. Uh, I don't think you should do it." I go, "I signed a contract." He goes, "Well, I don't like her." Yeah, but Rodney, I said. So he was he was he was pissed at me for taking the gig that he told me to get. So those two things eventually led to him firing. Between the um, the dog incident and and then the thing with signing on to do uh, shows with with Joan Rivers, um, do you think maybe he was just looking for an excuse to to ditch you, or were things still good at that point? Um, no, I don't think so. I think that's his, that was his personality because every comedian that followed me that he used to open sooner or later got into trouble with him for some stupid thing. Until uh, this guy named Harry Basil who called him on it. And Harry did something like he, Harry started directing those movies that he does that he go that go to video that went to video, and something like he thought Harry's name was too big on the uh, the credits. He said, "Oh, are you bigger than me or something?" And Harry stopped the car. He told me this. He said, "I stopped the car." He said, "Rodney, you do this to every person you make friends with, and I'm not going to take it. You know, if you don't, if you want to fire me, fire me. But you know, you're full of it, and I don't want to. You know, you're, you're out of your mind." And and Rodney actually said, "Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right." So. Uh, Harry called him on it, and Harry's the only guy who lasted with him for about ten years. So, yeah. Did, so I think that's just the way he was. He he, he would flare up and hold a grudge. Did you ever get a chance to work with Rodney again? Yes. Maybe this was two or three years after he fired me. I was at the Improv in L.A. and he was there, and and uh, we reconnected. You know, he's like, "Hey, how you doing?" You know, I guess he's sort of semi forgot. <laughs> And I and I, I had my newborn, not newborn, but two year old kid. We brought him to the, and he says, "Oh, you have a son! Oh my God!" So I, the warm feelings, the warm fatherly feelings he had came back. And then, like a couple of weeks later, we ran into each other at the Laugh Factory. Uh, he was with his new wife, Joyce. Um, and um, again, we were. I said, "Hi, Rodney. Hi, Dennis. How you doing?" You know. And he apparently he turned to his wife and said, "What am I mad at him for again?" <laughs> he, he forgot. <laughs> So then he called me, his people, his people, his friend calls us, Rodney wants to do a one-nighter with you and Harry Basil uh, in Phoenix. And I said, okay, we did it. And uh, he got drunk on the plane back. He charged the plane back and came up came up to the both of us and said, Harry, you were fantastic. Dennis, you were okay. He was still giving me the needle, you know. Uh, and then he wanted me to do it again. But by that time, I was with Carl, George Carlin. And I said, I, I can't. And he said, oh, if you want to do that, you know, he's getting mad again because I had another gig and I wasn't even with him anymore. So this is why you never want to get into show business. <laughs> <laughs> for, for all you kids out there who are thinking right. about yeah. getting into show business. <laughs> right. Don't open for celebrities. It'll, it won't work out well for you. Did you, uh, did you get a chance to reconcile with Rodney before he, he passed away back in 2004? Uh, well, the last the last thing was that uh, you know that one nighter that I just described, and that's the, that's I think that's the last time I saw him. I might have run into him one more time at the Laugh Factory, but we never uh, you know we never got together anymore because by that time I was you know with I'd done two years with Joan Rivers and one year with Tom Jones, and then Carlin was almost twenty. So by that time, you know, I was on the road a lot, you know, so we didn't get a chance to hang out, and I'd moved to L.A. so. Uh, he still lived in New York, and I think he had a place in L.A. too. But we just never, our paths never didn't cross much. And definitely want to talk about your time with Joan Rivers because uh, that, of course, uh, again, another huge part of your life and of, of your career. How did Joan Rivers and her people become aware of of what you were doing? Uh, apparently. Um, you know, even when I was with Rodney, I got this great agent who would, you know, when Rod- Rodney was on the wasn't on the road all the time, so he would book me with other acts, you know, Spinners, Laura Branigan, uh, the Righteous Brothers. So I opened for a whole bunch of other people at casinos in Atlantic City and Las Vegas, 
So one maitre d' at Caesars uh, told, I guess they were looking for an opening act when Joan was there and he told them about me. And so they called them. That's what happened. I don't know if they saw a tape or what, but they decided to try me out for 10 days. Based on the experience that you had um, working with Rodney and the direction that things went there, did you have any any fear or trepidation about working with Joan Rivers? Well, yeah, it was like I said, basically, this better work out because I'm suddenly fired. I'm suddenly job. The dream has ended. You know, uh, yeah, and also um, she was traveling at the time. She always at that time. This was the mid '80s, so Joan was always using two opening acts for some reason. She always had an op- a, a, a musical opening act and a, a comedian. So. I guess I fit both bills, but she was also, but she was using at the time, Gary Shandling. Oh, wow. Okay. Who was the name he, had, he was about to become. He was kind of semi, he'd done one or two tonight shows. Uh, so I met, so they came in, her and her husband, Edgar came in. It was the Chateau de Ville in Massachusetts. And that was the first time I was going to work for her. And uh, yeah, I was a little, a little bit nervous, especially when Edgar comes up to me right before I go on and goes, Right, don't fuck up, Blair. We'll be watching you. Oh, great! Thanks. Put me at ease. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Uh, luckily, again, good audience, great, great audience. You know, the shows went really well. She, she, uh, she didn't say anything to me though. She was in her dressing room. Uh, I, so I came off stage and there was nobody there. I'm going, uh oh, <laughs> did I, did I, did my dog fall in her pool while I was on stage? <laughs> uh, nothing, and then. They come out of the dressing room. I go, hi. Go, oh, hi. Uh, and then Joan goes, okay, let's all go eat. <laughs> and then Edgar goes, you did well, Blair. Come on, come with us. Uh, so that was how I found out that, you know, I got the, I was able to finish the 10, the 10 day tour. And which became, you know, hey, just stay with us, basically. Mm-hmm. I got a lot of, hey, you just want to, you got, hey, you're all right. You want to hang out? You want to open for me some more? So, and I found out that Gary Shanling did not like my act. Someone there, the uh, who liked me at the uh, on the crew said, "Yeah, Gary was like going on about this is wrong for Joan. This shouldn't work." But we eventually became real good friends, so that that worked out too. Apparently, people hate me at, at first. <laughs> <laughs> um, was there a, like a real difference between Rodney's audiences and Joan's audiences? I mean, it, it's it it seems like Rodney's audiences might be a little more raucous than Joan's audiences. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, the, Rodney uh, appealed more to the beer drinking younger crowd. Um, so many nights. I mean, the first the first theater I did with Rodney was in Philadelphia, the Academy of Music, and the lights went down, and the crowd is getting excited because Rodney's about to come out. <laughs> However, and to make it worse, the announcer goes, "Are you ready for the show, yeah! ladies and gentlemen? Please welcome." Rodney Dangerfield's opening act. They didn't hear that part. They didn't hear the last part. They heard, welcome Rodney Dangerfield. And I come out and it goes, I swear to God. And I'm going, shit. And I start doing my Bee Gees parody, which is what I used to open with. And disco, disco was hated back then. So I go, this looks like a disco crowd. And I launch into the Bee Gees and I'm like sweating. And I just, and finally they start to realize, oh, oh, it's a parody. He's making fun of the song. So then slowly, okay, I'm turning them around. And by the end, it went fine. It was good. But that first time was, yeah. So, but his audience says you had to be funny immediately. Joan was, uh, they were, yeah, they were different. They were a little bit more accepting, you know, there's always that thing when an opening act comes out where, oh, damn it. <laughs> I gotta sit through this. Got to honey. We gotta pay the babysitter for an extra twenty-five minutes as an opening act. <laughs> so the good thing about all that was you had to figure out how to be funny fast. Something that I got from uh, reading your book uh, about the time with Joan Rivers, and and I've read this elsewhere in other other interviews and other stories about her as well, is that she she really kind of had this. Um, almost like a, a, a den mother mentality. Like she would try to bring people into the fold and, and really try to make them feel like they were part of the family. Yeah, that's true. She was very un, un, unpretentious, you know, den mother. As a matter of fact, 
just skipping ahead, you know, after I left Joan to go with, with other, 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 other things, um, about, let's see, 15 years later, I got a call from her, not from her, but from her manager. And I hadn't seen her or worked with her for like at least 15 years. And they say, Hey, Joan's doing a, a date in San Jose. You want to open? And I went, yeah, that'd be good. You know? And so I, you know, we drove there and uh, she was, you know, she, she loved my wife and, and it, probably more than me. <laughs> so we get there and she's in her gown. She's ready to go. And someone says, there's a JP, there's a shoe store, like a, I forget one of those uh, cheap shoe stores down the block. So she goes, Oh, I need shoes. Let's go in her gown. She goes out the theater, walking down two blocks to the, the shoe store. People are honking their horns. Hey, we're coming to see you, Joan. Oh, good. I'll be back. We go to the shoe store with Joan. She says, Peggy, pick out a pair. You're getting the pair. Goes to the, you know, it just does that. And then walks back to the theater, walks back, no car and just goes, does her show. So, I mean, that was kind of the way she was just kind of like, you know, come on, we're all coming on. Oh, go, go on a ship, right? We're going to go skiing. Let's go. Come on. 10 in the morning, you'd get phone calls. Yeah. So she was, she was that way. And she, from what I read in your book too, she was a bit of a tourist. Like she loved yeah. when she was in a city, she loved going and seeing things in the city. Right. Right. Well, the Elvis story. <laughs> you, you, my friend are the only person I know who's seen the, the bathroom where Elvis died. <laughs> unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So, so, so we're doing a show. Joan's doing a show with, uh, and Gary Shandling's on it too. Uh, this is in Memphis and, uh, she go, we go all go, come on, we're going to see Graceland. You know, <laughs> we have to go. You can't say no because you don't want to get fired. She brings the entourage, the hairdresser, the, uh, the manager, B, Peg, Shandlin, to go see Graceland. She gets a, and we don't have, we don't go with the tourists because, no, 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 I'm sorry. We do, we did go with the tourists then. Uh, so, because it was just part of the tour. But, you know, people left her alone, oddly enough, pretty much. But the, the guy who ran Graceland just was a big Joan fan. So he says, listen, after your show tonight, come back. We'll show you the parts that nobody gets to see. So sure enough, we go back. <laughs> I mean, this is limousine going into Graceland for when people are stopping at the light. We're going, did they think, is that Elvis? Did he come back? Is he back? Is he in that limousine? Uh, we go in. They show us. The, 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 we skip. We just go upstairs. We go to see his bedroom, you know, with the three TVs in the ceiling. Everything is laid out the way it was just before he died. He's got his necklace on. He's got his guitar. His guitar is right next to the dresser. Then we go into the in, infamous bathroom where he supposedly died. And they said he died in this chair. The chair they said he died in was like this really, the seat reclined. It was, it was like a steep 45 degree angle. And we're sitting there going, there's no way he could have fallen out of this chair. We're just debunking the whole thing. And Joan tells us, don't make fun. Don't make jokes. They'll get very, very mad at us if we make jokes. Anyway, we got to sit in the, the, the chair where Elvis supposedly died. So that was that. You sat in the chair, but did you try falling out of the chair? I did try falling out of the chair. It's like, how did he fall? If he fell onto the, apparently he fell onto the floor. How did he, it's impossible to fall out of this chair. Well, we all tried it. Chandling, me, Peg. <laughs> we all tried it. No one, no, no one was up there, so no one stopped us. Joan Rivers was red hot right around this time as well, wasn't she? This was right kind of around the time where she started uh, guest hosting The Tonight Show, correct? Right, yeah, again. My timing with these people was, was phenomenal. I mean, Rodney was, you know, Caddyshack, and I hook up with her, which is like, you know, getting to be gigantic herself. And her shows, you know, people just loved her shows. So uh, she, she, she made, she remained pretty, pretty big, you know. Um, but yeah, that was a great time. That was a great, great time. And I would, and if I wasn't with Shandling, I was with uh, who did who did, was oh Nell Carter. Sometimes would be the musical act, and. Uh, Father Guido Sarducci. <laughs> so I was the musical act when Guido, Guido was the comic. But uh, yeah, we had some fun times on the road there. And you did two shots on The Tonight Show? Yes. Yeah, she put me on. Because, you know, that was my, every comic's dream, you know, go on with Johnny. But, you know, she, uh, and my problem with those, with those shows and all shows is the, the, the rights to the songs. I mean, I did parodies. And they just got nervous about putting me on. But she got me on. She like fought for me. So I did one and then two. And then I was going to do the third one, supposedly with Johnny. And then she had her big falling out with Johnny. And suddenly I was considered a Joan act. So I didn't get to do my third tonight show. After she made the jump over to Fox to do her own show, um, did you get to do uh, her show? Yeah, I did her. 
I did that once. Or, I think I did it one time. Yeah. And then I did Arsenio. Uh, yeah. So, I got, so, so from that, I got some other nice little shots. Yeah. Uh, but like I said, it was always the, the problem with me was the music. It was like, well, he does parodies. And we don't want to get sued by the BGs or something like that. So I had to do a lot of public domain stuff, songs, you know, I had to come up with stuff that was not copyrighted or, you know, famous. Or do a really short parody, which is what I do now to this day. I usually do like two lines of the song, so that's usually no problem. So, what led to the end with uh, with Joan? Your your dog didn't fall in her pool or anything. Did not. Did not. No, this was uh, just stop calling me. <laughs> just stop calling. All of a sudden, oh, yeah, I would I would always expect you know Joan want you to hear Joan want to do it these days, and all of a sudden, I didn't get calls from the manager anymore. I'm going. Oh, it's been about a month. Oh, it's been two, it's been three months. I should call the manager. And, and, and I called the, her manager and they wouldn't get back to me. So I don't know. The 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 um the scuttlebutt is that her then agent, she got this new agent, and he got a guitar playing comic who was a lot cheaper than I was to pay. But you know, I never talked to anybody, you know, I didn't I never got the official word. So that was it. But by that time I was moving on and I was with Tom Jones at that time. So. You were, uh, you were ghosted before being ghosted was even actually a thing. That's exactly right. I am the original ghosted, my friend. <laughs> you look up ghosted in the dictionary. It's me walking away from Joan. <laughs> so there. After the break, Dennis shares George Carlin's opinion of Las Vegas crowds and reveals what it's like being the opening act for music royalty. That's next on Jeff Does Vegas. You mentioned working with Tom Jones and and opening up for Tom Jones. Uh, My wife and I saw him in concert many, many, many years ago. Easily one of the best shows we've ever seen. We were sitting in the second row in front of a a very... um, enthusiastic group of older Welsh ladies who were very much in love with him. We said the hardest part of being at that show sitting in the second row was getting hit in the back of the head with the underwear coming from the, the upper uh, balcony because people were still tossing their panties at him at that time. Yeah. What was working with Tom Jones? Like, I mean, I would imagine as a comic opening for musical acts like that, you mentioned that level of disappointment from the audience when (laughs) ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage. I mean, what's it like working as an opening act for, for musicians, for somebody like Tom Jones? Yeah. I I my next book should be called get off the stage. Who are you? That should be it. (laughs) Cause that's been my entire life as an opening act. You know, Oh geez, who's this guy? Um, Well, here's the thing with Tom. I mean, you know, when you open for Rodney and Joan, right. They're top comics, they're tops, but they're, but Tom Jones is like royalty. I mean, he's, you know, he's like the, the guys in that stratosphere, the, the singers, the, uh, the musicians, it's like, it's a whole nother level of, of, of audience worship. So, um, oh my God, I had some, the worst was, and again, it they kept me for a year, so it couldn't have been that bad. But, you know, there were times when it was like, it was a real struggle. It's like the first five minutes was like, you know, where's Dom? You know, you get the, and I have to come up with a snappy retort. I said, I say he's still undressed. He can't come out yet. I don't then they boo even more because oh Tom's on Tom's undressed. Bring him out now, you know. So I had to come up with a different one. Um but uh it was Mud Mud Island in ten, off of uh, in Tennessee. It's an outdoor theater. And there was the stage, say I'm on the stage, then in front of me is a huge space, maybe 75 yards of nothing except this big mound of something in the middle. I never understood. Maybe some acts performed there and then the audience. So I'm on stage and I'm getting nothing. I'm getting, you know, maybe a chuck. They're not booing me. I'm not getting heckled. They're not booing me off, but it's like, I want to get out of here. (laughs) And in the middle of this nightmare, these doors open in this thing in the middle, this mound of whatever in the middle, like four doors open and it's four members of the band and they're butt naked and they moon me Un- unseen by the audience behind them. So now I'm dealing 
with his band mooning me and them like not paying attention. I'm going, yeah, this is going to go in the book when I eventually write it. So, uh, and it was, yeah, and I, again, I got on, yeah, I made it off. But that night when Tom get on, got on stage, I mean, he always got an amazing applause, but, but, but it was off the charts. The, so they just, they did, they wanted nothing from an opening act. Yeah. But most of the time it was like, okay, he was pretty funny. You know, <laughs> by, the, by the end, all right, okay, he can live. We'll let him live. You know, that kind of deal. And from a legend of music to a legend of comedy, you went from working with Tom Jones to working with George Carlin. What year was it that you started working with George? 1988. And I was with him exclusively until 2006. And then uh, things took a turn, but I did, I did, I did some of his shows until 2008. And so again, how did that come to be? How was George and his management made aware of you and what you were doing? Well, again, like I said, I still had this agent and this agent, you know, in between these, these debacles that I went through with Joan and and Rodney and stuff and Tom Jones, uh, he would, he would book me for a week here or a weekend here with the four tops or, you know, Hey, you want to work for the four tops this week, next weekend? Do you want to, you want to work with uh, Alan King? You want to work with whatever, whatever, whoever the the three dog night, you know? So, and I usually say, yeah, I got nothing else to go. Yeah, sure. So, you know, it wasn't always like, Oh my God, I have no work between these big stars. But one day, this guy Fred, who's my agent, said, "Hey, you want to uh, you want to open for George Carlin for three months?" And I said, "Let me think about it." Hmm. 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 Open for George Carlin? Are you insane? Of course, I'll open for George Carlin. Are you kidding me? So apparently, I don't know how they they saw a video, a tape of me, maybe maybe my Tonight Show or whatever. So that's how they got wind of me through the through the agent. And uh, so I, I go to the theater in Omaha and. Uh, and don't know what it's going to be like. What will George be like? Will he be horrible? Will he be nice? Will he be... And the first thing I hear, I hear the door, I'm downstairs in the dressing room at this theater in Omaha, and I hear the door open upstairs, and I hear George's voice, never met him before, George's voice going, Dennis, where the fuck are you? I'm going, I'm going, I'm down here, George. And he comes down with his manager, he shakes my hand, how you doing? And he goes over to my fruit, my, I got a vegetable tray or something. He goes, what are those yours? I'm taking 50 carrots, all right? Fuck you, you're not getting all these carrots. It's like, I've, I've known the guy for like 75, 70 years or something. And we just, he just walks around the room looking around, he goes, okay, so yeah, hey, we like what you do. And uh, also, so uh, have a good show and don't fuck up, we'll be watching you. And he leaves and I go, well, okay, that was kind of interesting. That was fun. And then again, do the show. Luckily, they're receptive. Um, I come off stage thinking, okay, that went pretty well. I don't see George. I don't see his manager. I'm going, uh-oh. And I'm walking away from the stage, and I hear like this applause. And George had been behind the curtain listening to me. So he goes, that, that went great. We'll see, you, we'll see you tomorrow. I said, okay. So that's how that started. And then after this three months was over, he just said, stay. Why don't you just stay? Fine with me. And as a person to the general public, what was George Carlin like? Was he, uh, I mean, from what I've read and from what I've heard, he was a, 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 a really good guy. That was my understanding. Yeah, a great guy, totally approachable. You know, we go to airports, uh, we take rental cars to the theater. You know, I mean, he'd get the occasional limousine, you know, but uh, as a matter of fact, when he started doing really well, he started chartering planes, which was another wonderful story. But, you know, but when I first with, with, was with him, I, I'd fly commercial uh, uh, they, they'd fly commercial, you know. Uh, they fly first class, of course. And as I got out, got on, they'd say, "Keep walking, Dennis. Back to back, back, back with the sweaty pigs or something like that." Um, but uh, yeah, but I mean, people at the airport would come, George, how you doing? Hey, how you doing, man? Shake his hand, take a picture, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, and very funny. And the great thing about George was he was a hermit. He didn't like to hang out too much. He hung out with me backstage because we had a lot, a lot of laughs. Or if we were, you know, in the rental car or the, the car on the way to the gig. But but once you get to the gig, you know, and, and backstage at the gig, but once you get back to the hotel, you don't see each other until the next gig. You know, and that was after my experience with Rodney and, you know, to, to some extent, extent Joan, I said, great, less can go wrong. Because <laughs> I don't see George a lot, but when I do see him, it's great. But then, you know, so that's the thing I was very happy about. We won't have too much contact. So I won't, so my dog, whatever, so I don't do something wrong and piss him off. I can only imagine what those car rides with George would have been like. I mean, George, 
the his mind was amazing like it just oh, it, yeah. it seems like he, he he would be the type of person that his his mind would just always be going so i can really only imagine what the car rides were like oh yeah yeah well first of all we both had a jerry lewis uh a period of a jerry lewis obsession for some reason that we just kept doing his book why why yeah he'd leave me notes with jerry lewis and and, and draw a word balloon that said floyd and you know stuff like that so there was that uh and then um one car ride we took uh, we came up with these games like the car ride back to the hotel would often be like less than an hour so you know it wasn't a, a too much time but we came up with this game it's like We'd, we'd have come up with a premise and then like try to top each other. So one premise was stars, female stars who have the bushiest pubic hair. And George, George won because he said, Rhea Perlman. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, yeah, no, you win. You win. You definitely win on that one. But this is the kind of stuff. But I won one. And this was, you know, this is totally politically correct. But uh, the premise that we came up with is Kennedy's last words. And and I forget what George said, but I came up with, why is my head whistling? <laughs> okay. Now, I'm a horrible person for saying that, but I won. I don't care. Horrible person for laughing at it. <laughs> I won, goddammit. I'm taking that to the grave. Yeah. So that's the kind of stuff we do. And then one, once I was with him by himself, the manager could come. So he told me the whole story of his last uh, appearance at the Copacabana. And uh, it's pretty, it was like a 10, 20 minute story. I'm just driving going, I can't believe he's telling me this, you know? Yeah. So that, you know, we had fun in the car, fun backstage. Uh, and when we, we, we did Vegas, we do like two, two or three weeks at a time. So no one saw him. He was in his room writing his next special probably. Mm-hmm. So I had my kids at that time and my wife and we just hang out at the pool and have fun and, and you know, I'd see him backstage. Did George like the Vegas crowds? And, and the only reason I ask is he was a very intelligent comic. And I'm not saying that Vegas crowds aren't intelligent because I've been to so many shows and, and they are, and they can be, but I feel like it's a different level. And and with George's comedy, as I say, like it was, it was very intelligent and and it just like, did he like the Vegas crowd? No. (laughs) Does that answer your question? (laughs) No. What else would you like to ask me? (laughs) You know, again, it was um, when we first started, obviously he, I don't think he ever, I think when we first started doing Vegas, he was okay with them. Um, But as time went on, and as we found out that he was having, you know, he'd had years of addictions to Vicodin, red wine, and his his heart problems were starting again, and he got grumpier, He, he hated them, absolutely hated them. But at the beginning, they, you know, they the Vegas, Vegas showrooms aren't really made for comedy. I don't think like the ceilings are too high. You know, it's, it's not, it's not a, they're not hot room. So he was used to the theaters where they would just come to see him. There are his fans. They come to see George Vegas. It's almost like, well, we can't get into a city Dion. So I don't know. You want to go see this Carlin guy. They don't even know who he is probably at them. And then, you know, he do, he wouldn't hold back, you know? So people are just, um, Oh, he's, he's filthy. He's disgusting. That kind of stuff. So he had, deal with that but um he dealt with it the first um hello we do not eight, 10 10 15 years or something like that but as time went on he just got more and more disenchanted and he just said i hate this guy and once i remember i was downstairs in the dressing room and i i could hear him not clearly i could hear a little bit but i could tell by the uh the cadence of the sounds I was hearing that he wasn't doing his act at that moment. <laughs> so I run upstairs and he is ripping the audience a new one. It's like, you know, you fucking people, you guys, I, you're sitting there and you're just groaning and, you know, I have a great career and I hate this fucking town. And all this. It just went on for like three minutes. And then the funniest thing to me is like, you know, he rips these people saying, you know, so fuck you. I hope you all die in a fire. You stupid fucking people. Then there's a pause and I now like to talk about dogs and cats. <laughs> like, like nothing ever happened, <laughs> which was the thing that I enjoyed. But he did that a few times, and he finally said, "You know, I'm not doing Vegas." And he came back to the Orleans maybe two years later uh, because they begged him, and because 
that was off the strip. And it, it, those hotels he did off the strip that people would seek him out. So it'd be more of his fans. Mm-hmm. So I think he like kind of liked it there. You mentioned some of the bumps along the road while you were working with George. I mean, he he had a heart attack. He his wife passed away. Um, he went into to rehab at one point for addiction. I mean, obviously, you're concerned about George when these things happen. But at the same time, is there that that level of of selfishness, as if to say, ah, "Shit, here we go again." Of course, yes, and especially, and I I remember at the ten year mark. I mean, I'd never been with Rodney was the lowest. The longest was Rodney three and a half years at the 10 year mark. I'm going, I'm watching him off the side of the stage. I'm going, how long do I have? Because this has been much longer than I've ever lasted with any headliner. And I said, and, and this got, this got to end soon. I did 12 years and then 14, 15, I'm still with him. You know. And around 2005, I was in the hotel. We were there at Bally's. We were going to do a show that night. And, and the woman who ran the place said, George had a heart attack and canceling uh, this week. And, uh, oh, geez. And he recovered, you know, and uh, it, it started doing his things again. But that started happening, started happening slowly. Like he's canceling this date. He's canceling that one. He's not feeling well. He, he wouldn't necessarily have had a heart attack, but he's, he can't make it. He's, he's having trouble breathing, you know, having trouble breathing. Stuff like that started happening. And I'm going, ah, oh, ugh. Um, and then we found out later that the, not only was his, her result, were his arteries calcifying, but he had was battling an addiction to red wine, Vicodin. He'd been on for like years. So he just started getting, he started getting grumpy and nasty and lashing out at people and uh, lashed out at his manager, which I'd never seen before. So, uh, yeah, so I, that's when I started calling up the cruise lines to say, I better take, <laughs> this ain't going to last much longer. Yeah, but yeah. but but he started recovering a little bit. Uh, he got some treatment. I said, "Oh, okay, great. You know, um, good for him. You know, good for me too. But you know, great. You know, good good for George. I'm glad he's feeling better. He started doing shows, feeling better. But then I got a call from his limo driver on the way back from a wedding of relatives. Yeah, George passed away uh, today. Oh, that was that. Yeah. So yeah, but it wasn't a complete shock. You know, it's like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. that's true. Um, yeah, that's that's a deal there. You mentioned the shows at the Orleans where where he came back to Vegas after the the run at the MGM Grand, which, from my understanding, was where things went went really really badly uh, for George with the Vegas crowds. But clearly, um, he decided to come back and work in the city. Were those Orleans shows better for him? Yes, the crowds were better. I think he was sort of semi enjoying them, you know. Uh, but he, you know, he just, he came to really never love the Vegas crowds, you know, and then, you know, it's, I can understand that, you know, they could be, they could be tough in a showroom like that, you know, they're not really coming to see it, they're just coming to see a show. I never got a chance to tell him, but if he had asked me, I'd say, why don't you just put a, a thing out in the lobby, you know, like a, it says, if you are at all offended by offensive language please don't come to the show or however he would have worded it which would have been brilliant you know something along the lines of um if if you're offended by profanity yeah fuck off <laughs> yeah. perfect i wish you'd known him <laughs> but not only the profanity but you know i mean his subjects matter was you know challenging so mm-hmm. and he wasn't going to stop it for vegas he was going to say what he wanted to say you know send it I mean, even some of his fans sometimes, I, I get emails, you know, I, I have people that came to my shows and they buy CDs online and stuff. And say, what's with George? Why are you so angry? I, go, I don't know. Ask him. <laughs> he's just doing it. He's just being George. You know, he's got, he's pissed off a lot of things. So I do want to talk to you about your book, Touring with Legends, a comics tale of opening for Rodney Dangerfield, Joan Rivers, George Carlin, Tom Jones, and many more. Oh, that old thing. Yeah. That old thing. Um, Excellent read. I, I I love this book. I picked it up a while ago and just and absolutely love it. Good. There, there's so many amazing stories in this book, and not just the stuff that we talked about today with uh, with um, George Carlin and Rodney Dangerfield and Joan Rivers and Tom Jones. But I mean, some of my favorite stories in this book. I loved um, your stories about touring with Gloria Estefan and her wanting you to parody her music. <laughs> 
<laughs> she was she was a dream. She was just so great. Yeah, all around. No, do goys will be goys. I'm not going to do that <laughs> to people who came to see beloved you. I'm not doing goys. No, do parries of my son. No, I'm not doing. Okay, she was she was desperate to get me to paradise her stuff. <laughs> and then one of my other favorite ones was you getting called in to play softball with Gladys Knight and the Pips. <laughs> and I just did a gig with Bubba Knight uh, three nights ago. And I, yeah, he remembers that. He remembers or says he, re- he does. I don't know if he just, yeah, Bubba, the Gladys Knight. Oh, what a great memory. that was. Again, the book is just jammed full of little nuggets like those. And I mean, what was it that actually inspired you to take the plunge and write the book? So many people say, oh, one of these days I'm going to write a book, but you actually did it. Well, George's manager, after I'd been with them for about a year or two, had a meeting with me. He said, I want to be your manager. I said, okay. Uh, what am I going to say? No, <laughs> I don't have a manager. So he says, I'm going to do great things for you. So, okay. So then, and then, and then uh, okay. So I'm doing the thing with George. You know, nothing's really happening. Nothing. I'm saying, hey, we're going to do, we're going to do some stuff besides George in case he ever retires. Oh yeah, we'll get to it. So the first thing he says is, uh, you know what? I think I can, I can break you if you do a one man show. So I write this one man show and I do it in LA and it, it is in a small theater and it does well, you know, it's pretty, you know, and I got a director and uh, it took me, you know, three, four months to write, five months to write. And, and the manager didn't even show up. So I went, okay. He was, I'm in London, but have a great show. And nothing came up. Then he says, you know what? I'm going to get you your own album deal because George has his own record company. Great. That never materialized. And then he finally said, you know what? You should write a book. I go, about what? He goes, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Said, great idea. (laughs) So I go, well, what would I write a book about? Now, by this time, I should have said, you know, he's not going to, nothing's going to happen. He's obviously consumed with George and and that's fine. But then I said, "Eh, maybe I should write down one of these stories, these road stories. So that's how it started. This was like, 10 years before I published it. And um, I came up and just racked my brains. It came and just kept adding, oh, I remember that. I remember that. I remember that. Kept writing and writing. And I finally said, here's the book. And he said, okay, I'll take it to a publisher. He took it to a publisher. And he said, yeah, they turned it down. And I kind of thought, this other publisher. (laughs) You going to try? Eh, no, kind of busy. So So I just laid in my desk. And every once in a while, I go, you know, people say, self-publish. Okay, I'll do that. And then I did. <laughs> it costs a lot of money to self-publish. Uh, but I kept adding chapters and chapters. And, uh, finally, a friend of mine from Atlantic City says, I found, he was, uh, this guy was a fan of mine. And he said, I want to get your book published. Because I'd sent him a copy, you know, a paper copy. You've got to get this out there. And he, he was obsessed. He finally found this small publisher. I said, okay, let's do it. And that's how that happened. Well, as I say, it's, it's an excellent read. I, I really enjoyed it. There's, there's just a lot of really fun stories and a lot of interesting kind of behind the scenes sort of showbiz stuff. So uh, again, congratulations on it because I just, I, I, I really enjoyed it. I really loved it. Oh, thanks. Yeah. It's it's, it's people like it. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people got it. So, you know, not, not thousands, but uh, enough to make me feel okay. Good. I guess it was worth doing after all. So there you go. Excellent. Dennis, thank you once again for taking time to uh, to jump on and have a chat. Glad we were finally able to uh, get our schedules together and uh, get you on for a conversation. Sure. Thank you. You can catch Dennis performing all over Las Vegas. Check his website at DennisBlair.com for dates and venues. Be sure to pick up a copy of the book, Touring with Legends, a comics tale of opening for Rodney Dangerfield, Joan Rivers, George Carlin, Tom Jones, and many more from your favorite online bookseller. And check out Dennis's music on your favorite streaming platforms, including Apple Music and Spotify. Of course, I've got all these links in the show notes at JeffDoesVegas.com. (laughs) 
And that wraps up another episode of Jeff Does Vegas. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show, or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas. Or drop me an email directly at Jeff at JeffDoesVegas.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit JeffDoesVegas.com for past episodes and show notes. My name is Jeff, and this has been Jeff Does Vegas, a Walker New Media production. 